HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is supported by Angry Orchard. HRN is teaming up with them to host a virtual event all about American cider. Check it out at heritageradionetwork.org cider. There's such a big part of service in, like, the American economy just runs on service workers, I feel like, you know. And if we all realize that we're actually one big team here and come together because we all are fighting for very similar things, it, the number is huge. It's more than 12 million. You know, it's like such a big number. You just heard from Crystal Marr. She's a restaurant worker and member of the Texas Service Industry Coalition. Stick around to hear more about the coalition's work later in the episode. Crystal is just one of the millions of workers who are part of a labor union or organization, and this show is inspired by them. If you're in the U.S., you may not have realized we just marked a major holiday tied to the labor movement. But for much of the rest of the world, May 1st is a public holiday called May Day or International Workers' Day. Although we don't celebrate it here as much, May Day actually has its origins in the U.S. On May 4, 1886, workers gathered in Chicago's Haymarket Square to rally for an eight-hour workday. A bomb was thrown into the demonstration, and several people were killed. May Day commemorates the tragedy of the Haymarket Affair, but it's really about celebrating every fight for better working conditions. So in honor of May Day, today we're focusing on workers organizing and unionizing around the country. First, we'll start in our own backyard, New York City. We dive into the world of food delivery workers and their efforts to legislate the delivery apps that push them around the city. Next, we'll move upstate and look at farm workers fighting for more overtime pay before turning to the Texas Service Industry Coalition. And finally, we'll end the episode in San Francisco at Anchor Brewing, which is over 100 years old and ratified its very first union contract in 2019. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. So first, let's talk tech and big data. Technology is often framed as a way to make work easier and more efficient. But in New York, it's making food delivery workers' lives more difficult. Here's Anna Oakes with the story that she reported with Hannah Fulmer. 
On April 21st, more than 2,000 food delivery workers biked through Manhattan to protest for better work conditions. The group is called Los Deliveristas Unidos, or the United Delivery Workers. They were formed when a group of delivery workers joined with the New York-based Workers' Justice Project in late 2020, as conditions worsened due to the pandemic. Some of their key demands include greater transparency with delivery platforms, access to bathrooms, and better, consistent pay structures. To tell you the truth, there's no communication with them. You feel like you're talking to a computer. That's Jonan Mancilla. He's the co-founder of Los Deliveristas and has been a delivery worker with the company Relay for four years. Delivery workers are dependent on the apps for work, but the process of assigning work is rarely transparent. Their pay structure can be changed with a software update and workers can be deactivated without explanation. And in some cases, the app on their phones is workers' only point of contact with their employers. It's like they turned into a ghost. I mean, nobody knows where the office is. Everything is by phone. I can't make any complaints. If you get in an accident, you register it in the app. They always tell you, don't worry about it. But they don't help you with anything. Delivery workers are considered independent contractors, which means they don't get benefits like health insurance or sick leave. In return, they're supposed to be able to set their own hours and work wherever they choose. But according to Alexandra Matescu, a researcher at Data and Society, these delivery apps work on a system of nudges. As independent contractors, they can't directly tell people, you know, when or, or where to work. But by using sort of gamified nudges to push people to, you know, gather towards, you know, this surge pricing of, you know, demand, that is sort of how they um, move the workforce around. Surge pricing, extra jobs or pay incentives might push workers to a certain part of the city. They can even push them to pick up low-paying jobs that may not actually be worth their time. Yeah, it's like harassment. Like, we see that you're not moving, that you haven't moved from that area, blah, blah, blah. It's like, move around so you can take orders. But you have the right to be wherever you want, right? If they don't accept the job, the app can block them from future work. Many are afraid of being blocked by the app. Many have families, like me. I have my son, and my wife is pregnant. So that's it. I'm saying that it's not really an option to turn down the job, because you know that it'll affect you. What Los Deliveristas are responding to is part of a larger trend of tech companies gathering and using data on their workers. Workplace surveillance is often framed in terms of personal privacy, which kind of shifts it onto being an individual issue. But the, the issue is that a lot of times the negative effects of surveillance are collective. They're not individual. For example, a company could collect data on the speed of each delivery worker, then set the standard delivery speed based on the fastest worker and change the pay structure to match. So if you want to mitigate the negative effects of surveillance, you can't focus just on what is happening to individual workers or an individual's privacy. It's about the collective effect of how data in aggregate is being used to uh, change the climate of a workplace. Workers lose leverage under this arrangement. They don't know how or what information is being gathered on them. But organizations like Los Deliveristas Unidos are making it possible for workers to demand more from these apps. The march in April was just one of several held over the last few months. New York lawmakers have been working on legislation together with organizations like Los Deliveristas to protect delivery workers. 
On April 29th, city council members introduced the first bills to regulate third-party food delivery apps like Relay, Uber Eats, and DoorDash. But there's still a long way to go before these bills are passed. Next up, a story on how the legacy of Jim Crow agricultural laws live on today in New York State. A quick note, there are two versions of our next story, one in English and one in Spanish. Se puede encontrar la versión en español de esta historia en el feed del show Buen Limón Radio, también producido por Heritage Radio Network. Gracias. Sasha Cohen has the story that she reported with Maya Bernstein Shallot. Luis Jimenez wakes up at 5.30 a.m. A las cinco y media de la mañana. Y... He arrives at the dairy farm in upstate New York where he works at 6 a.m. His job right now is to care for the calves, but he's done everything from corralling the adult cows to cleaning the pens, and he's almost always working outside, no matter the heat, El calor, the rain, la lluvia, or snow. La nieve, yo trabajo afuera. Luis is an organizer with Alianza Agricola, a collective of farm workers in New York State that advocates for workplace protections and the rights of farm workers. In 2019, they won a landmark legislative victory ensuring farm workers' rights to collective bargaining. They couldn't be a union before 2019 that would have the authority to collectively bargain on behalf of other workers. Lisa Zucker, an attorney at the New York Civil Liberties Union, is a part of a coalition working with Alianza Agricola to fight for overtime pay. Overtime pay is huge. Um, Overtime pay is important, one, to make money, but really overtime pay is a labor protection. Under current New York state law, employers are only required to pay overtime to farm workers when they work more than 60 hours per week. The coalition is organizing to lower that threshold to 40 hours a week. The current 60-hour threshold was pushed for by the agricultural lobby due to concerns over increased costs and union regulations. I mean, from the very beginning, we faced tremendous opposition from the New York Farm Bureau. And they say they are really the face of small farmers, but in reality, they're the face of like corporate, you know, ag, like agribusiness. I mean, they're a multi-million dollar organization. They have lobbyists all over the country, including many in New York. And as you can imagine, if you work in the area of labor rights, Every time you want to pass something that benefits workers, management doesn't want you to. I mean, why would a farmer want to pay more, right, for for its workers? Although overtime pay increases operational costs for farmers, it originated as an essential protection for workers. Most workers want to make more money. So if there's no incentive for businesses to, uh, you know, limit their hours, then they'll just, you know, why don't you work 100 hours a week and you'll get paid? (laughs) But somebody realized in the 30s, no, 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 no. People are not machines and they will injure their bodies uh, with all, and not to mention it's physical and emotional. I mean, if you can imagine if you've ever had one week where you've worked, you know, hours and hours and hours and how horrible you felt, multiply that by 52 weeks a year. So it's a labor protection as well as a way to increase your wages. The lack of overtime protections for farm workers in New York state law can be traced back to Jim Crow era legislation in the 1930s. When Roosevelt was negotiating and passing all the New Deal legislation, which included, you know, 
very significant laws like the Fair Labor Standards Act and the National Relations Act, giving workers really for the first time uh, rights for a 40-hour work week and overtime pay and the right to bargain, you know, the right to form a union and bargain. All those things really didn't exist. Northern Democrats supported President Roosevelt's efforts to guarantee labor rights, but Southern Democrats fought against him. The Southern Democrats, who um, were segregationists in the 30s, said to him, well, that's all well and good, but, you know, we're not going to give Black people the same rights as white people. That's crazy. Um, and as you can imagine, in the 1930s, these are people who were former slaves and sharecroppers. A, a large majority of the Black population in the South were agricultural workers. Men were agricultural workers and women were domestic workers. In order to get his labor reforms passed, Roosevelt made a compromise. And so the compromise, the um, horrible, horrible, insidious compromise that was made in the Fair Labor Standards Act and the National Relations Act was that the rights would apply to everyone except the two categories of workers where most Black people were working, agricultural workers and domestics. Um, and that is how the law on the federal level um, exists today. Until 2019, New York state law followed suit. And even though New York's farm workers were finally granted these basic protections less than two years ago, they're still excluded from the overtime pay that most other employees are entitled to under federal and state law. To this day, elements of Jim Crow power structures remain intact, like the practice of agricultural workers living in houses that are provided by their bosses because they can't afford anything else. En la casa que nos dan los Luis says that he experiences racism at work all the time. Hay mucho racismo. He believes that refusing to lower the overtime threshold is a way for bosses to prevent workers from gaining power over their lives at work. Que no quieren darnos poder a nosotros, no? At the end of 2020, the New York State Farm Wage Board decided to wait another year until December 2021 to decide whether to lower the overtime threshold to 40 hours a week. So it was a disappointment that the law did not see to treat farm workers the same as almost every other worker in our state with overtime pay after 40 hours. Until then, organizations like the NYCLU and Alianza Agricola will be collecting signatures for petitions, educating both farm workers and the general public on this issue, and collecting testimonies. When asked why overtime pay is important to him, Luis said, El promedio de vida de un trabajador agrícola es 50 años. The average life expectancy of an agricultural worker is 50 years. And despite the effect of their work on their health, agricultural workers are usually not provided health insurance by their employers. Actualmente, los trabajadores agrícolas no tenemos ese derecho ¿no? de, ten, de, de contar con un seguro médico por parte de nuestro empleador. If successful, the current campaign would ensure that farm workers are paid for the hours they work, creating better conditions for economic gain and better health. For Luis, this would mean being healthy enough to live a long life with his sons, now 17 and 7, and his son's children. To learn more, you can find information about Alianza Agricola and the New York Civil Liberty Union's campaign for farm workers in our show notes. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a brief break.
This episode is supported by Angry Orchard. I'm Jimmy Carboni, host of Beer Sessions Radio, and I'll be moderating an amazing virtual event with Angry Orchard and Heritage Radio Network on May 26th. We'll be celebrating the release of the new first-of-its-kind book, American Cider, A Modern Guide to a Historic Beverage. I'll be in conversations with the authors, Daniel Pucci and Craig Cavallo. Then we'll welcome Angry Orchard head cider maker, Ryan Burke, for myth-busting about this beverage and an interactive cider tasting. When you order a ticket, you'll also receive a copy of the book. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash cider. Plus, you'll find a link to purchase a hand-selected cider bundle from Angry Orchard so you can taste along with us. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash cider. Welcome back to Meet in Three. Now let's head out of New York and to Texas. Karina Andriatos talks with Crystal Marr about how some restaurant workers are pushing for better working conditions. This past year, one of the groups the pandemic hit the hardest were restaurant workers. From layoffs to frequent COVID scares, 2020 has highlighted how without a national labor union, the service industry was left unprotected. It's very easy to retaliate against a worker in our industry because we don't have set schedules like teachers, nurses, you know, they have a pretty defined like this is your schedule, this is your job role, this is what's going on. Whereas when you're in the service industry, you don't know your schedule from week to week. You can be taken off a schedule with no reasoning given to you by a boss and that's just normal. So it's very easy to union bust. Um, It's very easy to divide workers. That's Crystal Marr, who in July joined the Texas Service Industry Coalition and the DSA Restaurant Organizing Project to advocate for her fellow service industry professionals. Within the last year, Many have reconsidered the importance of baristas, servers, and line cooks as restaurants have become a symbol of economic recovery and a return to normalcy. But greater reverence hasn't translated to better earnings or working conditions for these individuals. Last year, when they started pushing us open too early, what we noticed was they were always doing it around a holiday. Like, we've got to push open before the summer so we can get that you know, 4th of July money or that Halloween money or that New Year's Eve money. Businesses are always going to prioritize making sure their bills are paid over our health and safety. Despite the hardships of the pandemic and even risk of exposure, restaurant workers were still being pressured to work. That's where alliances like the Texas Service Industry Coalition unite restaurant workers across the state through advocacy and organizing. Their Instagram page is full of information, such as where and how workers are organizing and how to get involved. These posts have successfully mobilized workers for certain issues. In Austin, we put on a pressure campaign around the vaccines. You know, once Governor Abbott was like, okay, mask mandate lifted, we were like, okay, fine, but you have to give us vaccines. At the time, the vaccine distribution in Texas was in phase 1A and B, meaning that only medical personnel people who are older than 65, or people older than 16 with a qualifying medical condition could get vaccinated. So, without masks and a large population being ineligible for the vaccine, restaurant workers were very worried about increased COVID exposures. We held a rally and we got the petitions out there and we did a phone blitz and um, 
you know, did they give vaccines to restaurant workers specifically? No, they ended up giving them to everyone. We still see that as a win because restaurant workers, you know, were included in everybody. And we wanted to make sure everyone got vaccines. In addition to advocating for restaurant workers on a large scale, the Texas Service Industry Coalition also strives to help meet the needs and rights of workers on an individual, case-by-case basis. We feel that information is the key to power. We want to make sure that restaurant workers have access to important information, like know your rights training. You know, knowing that if an employer does certain things to you in a workplace, you actually have legal grounds to stand up for yourself. Um, We want to make sure that we're providing trainings to workers on how to organize their shop floor. What I really like want restaurant workers to understand is we're such a powerful voting block. And we could have so much power in this country if we had a better understanding about legislation and policy and and stuff that affects us. Because this is how the bosses always win. Take the Independent Restaurant Coalition, for instance, a national group that has made strides in lobbying and bringing government relief to small independent restaurants and bars in the past year. This March, their efforts were proven successful with the $28.6 billion Restaurants Act that was passed. If any restaurant worker is listening to this and is like, yes, I want something different, but I don't know where to start. First step they just need to do is to find one of us and get plugged in because things are going to change for the better the second we plug in with each other. If you're interested in connecting with and being involved in any of the coalitions mentioned in this story, the links will be in our show notes. For our final story today, let's look towards the West Coast, where organizers in the East Bay are transforming bargaining power through labor unions. Here's Cameron Berger. Anchor Brewing was the first domino to fall. Established in 1896, the brewery is about as iconic in the craft beer world as the Golden Gate Bridge. Workers at the historic San Francisco brewery ratified their very first union contract in December 2019. Just over a year later, about a mile away, the workers at Tartine Bakery voted to unionize. The vote would go through a full year of litigation before Tartine Union would be formally recognized. Now, neighboring workers over at Dandelion Chocolate have a union drive well underway. They intend to join ILWU-6, that's the local chapter of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union that Anchor and Tartine both belong to. So what set these dominoes in motion? Let's start with Anchor Union. Anchor is like legit one of the last like working class like blue collar jobs left in San Francisco. That's Patrick. He's a bartender at Anchor Public Taps and a key organizer for Anchor Union. When anchor workers began to organize, he was a representative for the public tap room. I got nominated to be part of something we call the bargaining committee, which essentially are a group of people from different departments in the company that wrote the contract that we have today. After that, we held nominations for shop stewards, which essentially are the people that kind of walk around, make sure that they have the relationships with all the workers and um, file grievances, as well as keep in touch with management to make sure that they're following the contract. This type of bureaucratic organization is typical of a labor union. 
Organizers require eyes and ears on the ground and a trusty line of communication with the higher-ups. What stands out about Anchor Union's success is the help of outside organizers. Um, a few of us were in uh, an organization called DSA, which is the Democratic Socialists of America in the San Francisco chapter. And they started working there a few years ago and said, hey, like, let's start this conversation back up, especially because we just got word that we are being bought out by Sapporo, which is a $10 billion a year multi industry type of corporation that isn't just beer. This external support from DSA organizers helped to dispel skepticism among many of the veteran staff at Anchor. They thought we were a whole bunch of young bucks that were just trying to take away their jobs and all this stuff, and that we have no idea what we're doing. Those relationships eased. Uh, A lot of us are still friends with them. Uh, They saw the external thing as kind of helpful. It's these connections between the young anchor staff and the old guard at the brewery, between Anchor Union and the DSA, between individual workers in the East Bay. These relationships have emboldened an ongoing wave of union drives. Anchor Union has led by example, and now they're stepping in to offer external guidance. With Tartine, we had, I'm pretty sure we had like one of our main outside organizers that helped us out from the DSA actually had their partner that worked there that was explaining some of the situation. And we started to make friends there uh, with some of the people and decided to kind of help them out. And in the process of that, uh, Dandelion, uh, one of us was roommates with one of these chocolate makers, as well as another person from DSA started talking to some people from there as well. So it's just kind of a weird kind of like relationship that we've already had, but they saw the success that we've had and we're helping with them. Like I'm, I, my phone is constantly blowing up with dandelion text messages all the time. And we're there to kind of bring more younger workers within this specific local and our international as well as the actual local have seen that and have been giving us as much resources as they possibly can because they know that this is kind of the future of where this specific local is going. To learn more about Anchor Union, Dandelion's ongoing union drive, and how to reach your local DSA chapter, check out the show notes. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Sasha Cohen, Maya bernstein Shallot. Cameron Berger, Tosh Kimmel, Karina Andriatos, Anna Oaks, and Hannah Fulmer. Meet in 3 is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet in 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet in 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or just want to say hi, you can write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc, all spelled out.